Good morning. Well, my son and some men in this church recently went to a trip to Kazakhstan, and uh, they spent 10 days there uh, working with some of the Kazakhs and uh, working with a missionary, uh, Ruslan Titi. And uh, my son came back, and I spent some time with him, just debriefing. You know, he was... He, I, he might have been the youngest on that trip and uh, had never been cross-culture before. That's, that's a pretty big culture to cross uh, all the way on the other side of the world. And uh, so we had a little bit of time to hike and debrief a little. And, and it was interesting, the final thing that he came away with, the thing that I think boiled it down to everything of the great impact that we had prayed together would happen in his life when he said this. He said, you know, Dad, it was very encouraging to see people for whom all they had in this life was their faith. And I didn't immediately go, yeah, that's great for them. It really came like a shot across my bow. Because I thought... Is that not all any of us have? But I think he said it with great warrant. No one could live one second in this life without hope. Hope's the reason for everything we do. Moment by moment, Day in, day out, year after year, without hope, you would do nothing. I asked my son before the service started to go get me a drink in hopes both that he would return (laughs) and that my nervous, dry mouth might be appeased enough for me to speak. Had I not thought those things would happen, I wouldn't have bothered asking, taking the great risk of what else he might get into along his way. There's nothing we do that's not attached to hope. Younger people here, students, why do you work hard at school? Is it because of your general fervor and appetite for education? (laughs) Because you just love it so much? Addicted to learning, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or it's in the hopes of a good job, one that pays well and that you enjoy. Parents, why do you so strive for your children to do well in school? Because of your appetite and fervor for education? It's probably the same reasons and also so that maybe uh, uh, it'll, you'll have the, retain the added benefit of not having to financially support them in your old age. That is an added benefit, I think. Why do we work hard at the jobs that we have to do every day? Obviously, it's to keep our job, or, or maybe so we could get a promotion or a raise, so that we can have the life that we want and the life we dream of, the life we're working hard and hoping for. That's often what drives us. Take a moment, if you would, and I'm going to ask you to do this vulnerable exercise because I can see you, uh, so you're really only vulnerable to me. Uh, close your eyes for a moment, and I want you to picture the life you hope for. Do you see it? Maybe it involves a good job that pays well and that you love and that affords you time with your family, money to do the things that you want to do and to support your family in the way you want. Maybe it includes a nice home. It doesn't have to be a mansion, but a home that's a refuge to all who enter. Cars that aren't necessarily luxurious, but they're reliable and maybe practical and roomy or fun and fast. You see your children enjoying their friends and their family, doing their homework, practicing their passions. You see your children now grown, maybe, who are successful and bring their families over to visit, and their grandchildren who are lively and love to spend time with their grandparents. Maybe you see a little bit of financial security so you don't have to be stressed out about whether or not you'll make it or not. Think of the details. 
What's that refuge of a house like when you enter? Is it roomy and spacious? The right furniture? Does it have a well-manicured backyard for the kids to play in? Flower beds and gardens? And what are you doing in this life you hope for? You enjoying time with friends and family? Maybe in that very home. Are you traveling, seeing the world? Enjoying fun places with those you love? And what are you like in that vision of hope? Are you in good shape, active and energetic? Are you a more noble version of the most interesting man or woman in the universe? Does your Christian faith also fall among these hopes for your life? Maybe you see yourself having personal devotions out on your sanctuary of a back porch with the perfect cup of coffee. Do you see yourself at church with all those people you love and enjoy? Do you do something meaningful in service that you love and enjoy that also helps others? Do you have it all in this vision for your life? Are you happy and content with this vision and all it has to offer you? Because I'll tell you, and you can look up now, and thank you for uh, participating. Because I tell you, this vision will cost you your whole life to obtain. What is the life that you hope for that drives you to do all that you do every single day of your life? What is that vision of your life? And what hope is attached to it that drives you in all that you do? Do you have a plan or a path, as many of us do, for how you and your family can get all you want out of this life? And let me ask you this, do you sacrificially seek to follow this plan in hopes of achieving that in this life? Isn't this the life of faith? Is it? Often we view faith as an exchange in our culture. It goes something like this. Here I offer my confession of belief, and in exchange, I receive a personal assurance of eternal security. Then I go on seeking those things in life that I desire. But as one who has eternal security, and I'll have some devotionals and I'll go to church also, because I want that in my life as well. I'm not being cynical. I do want that in my life as well. And that's why that's included. I enjoy that greatly. But here's the tension. If this is what the life of faith looks like, then why did Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 19 say this? If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Tell me this. The vision of your life in this life, did it hinge upon the resurrection? For example, as you envision that life for yourself in this life, if you took away the resurrection and attained all that, would people go, boy, you are so to be pitied for that life? My guess it wasn't. Mine wasn't. Do you feel the tension? The tension of do you think that maybe Paul had in his mind a life of faith that doesn't correspond to our vision of a life of faith? See, Paul had been preaching to the Corinthians and, and in their culture... He preached Christ and Him crucified in the resurrection. And they professed belief in it. But they didn't necessarily believe it. It hadn't gotten down into, into their deeds. Maybe they professed it in word, but in deeds it was seeking, as it is for all of us, by the way. You see, the belief of the ancients, particularly Romans and Greeks, was that uh, they don't know about immortality. They don't know about living forever. That was not a real popular belief. It wasn't clear, it wasn't strong, and it wasn't a widespread belief. In fact, they mainly believe that when you die and your soul separates from your body, yeah, everything's just dead, you're dead. 
Uh, you know, we have a common inscription we put on tombstones. Are you familiar with it? R.I.P., it stands for some other, probably Latin. But we call it rest in peace, and it essentially conveys the same, the same message, rest in peace. They had one as well that was pretty much on most of their tombstones. This is how it went. And tell me if you can catch their beliefs here. I was not. I was. I am not. I am free from wishes. You hear it? You just die, and it's over. You have one life to live. This is called fatalism, a lack of belief in life after death. And what it did was it led people to want to live life now in the fullest because it's all there is. Eat, drink, and be merry was a common slogan of the day. Some of ours go like this. You only live once. Hashtag YOLO. Life is short, so get all you can out of it. See, their cultural concern was primary blessing in this life. And fortunately, with some of the affluence they had, they could afford to live that way. It was a hope that might have been attained in this life. Another popular quote at feast was this. Well, well, if we know we must die, why should we not live? People long for salvation, but it wasn't a salvation that entailed deliverance from this world and a clear path to the world to come. No, it was a salvation that had to do with the matters of this life. It was a hope and vision for this life, for health, for wealth, for prosperity, for comfort, for security, for success, all that could be attained in this life. It's a very similar vision to the way we might play out a life of faith ourselves, us being very similar to the Corinthians in many respects. You see, the reason Paul saw those who believed in an unrisen Christ as most to be pitied was because they had embraced Christ's death and his suffering for themselves in this life. And if they had done that for nothing, they were to be pitied. Because if they had embraced the death of Christ and the death of themselves in this life alone, their religion would have been ineffective. And it actually would have been detrimental to one's health because it only bestows suffering upon its followers. Suffering the loss of all things for Christ's sake. Sharing in the fellowship of His sufferings. Becoming like Him in His death so that what? We also might be like Him in His resurrection. If the resurrection wasn't true, then they would have turned out to be as foolish as the world thought they were. Because the cross is foolishness to those who believe that this life is all there is. And they're right to say that it is. See, but to those who believe in the resurrection... Their base, the basic orientation of a Christian for the joy that they have is because of the hope they have on the other side of the grave, not for the things they wish to attain in this life. That Christ will return, that the dead will rise, that wrongs will be made right, every tear will be wiped, correct? If that's not true, then this joy is displaced by despair. So what's a life of faith? The writer of Hebrews says this, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For us in our culture and in the Corinthian culture, we have a wish or dream or vision of our lives on this side of the grave. Solomon made a prayer, and it's for good reason. 
Give me not riches, for I may have no need of you at all, God. In a world with much, we can afford to have hope in this life. See, my son came to see that those who have nothing have no warrant for a hope in this life. And so what do they have? All they have is their faith. This is what Solomon meant. If I have great riches, I may have no need of you at all, God. You living in the most wealthy society that ever lived may, have, may believe you have no need of hope at all beyond the grave. Because you know what? Part of the American dream involves us being able to acquire all that we dream that we can in this life, or at least something close enough to us, to it, to fully satisfy us in this life. We also find in Hebrews that the one who comes to God must believe, number one, that he is God, that God is God, and number two, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Those are big things. In our culture, we often believe in a God that will reward us with all the things we want in this life. Hashtag in Jesus' name, right? All my heart's desire fulfilled in this life by Jesus. Go Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for our salvation right here and now. Well, the writer of Hebrews fortunately goes on to give very concrete examples of what this life of faith is that Paul's talking about and that talks about through Scripture. Let's see how these stories of faith compare to the cultural perspective that I just shared, both in our culture and in the Corinthian culture at large. Let me read through them real quickly. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. What do you think that cost Noah and his family? Do you think it cost them their vision for this life, all that they had worked for, all that they had wherever they were? Do you think building that ark for many years cost them that? It cost them everything. It cost them everything. How about by faith Abraham? When he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Leaving his family cost Abraham and his generations their lives in this world. In those times, all you had was your inheritance, your societal position, the land that came with it. And whatever had been attained through the many generations before you in planning and toil, he turned his back on and walked away from it in faith. He lost everything he had in this world to follow God. It cost him everything. Why would he do that? Why would Noah do that? How about Moses? By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Why would he leave all the wealth, comfort, the position, all the advantages that the wealthiest place, and he was there in the wealthiest house of the wealthiest place in the world. Why would he leave that behind? Why would you do that? Why would anybody do that? That's crazy. And it goes on to talk about others who were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection not accepting their release so they can obtain a better resurrection? What? And others experiencing mocking, scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment, and it goes on. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword, and on and on. These are pictures of people of great faith. And they did not receive what was promised. 
great faith. And do you know what it got him in this world? A quick ticket to the bottom of a grave. That's what it got him. Men and women of great faith. Why would somebody do that? Does it bother you? It bothers me. Why would someone do that? What hope drives a person to suffer the loss of all things that amount to life in this world, knowing they would gain nothing for it in their lifetime? It goes against everything we strive for in our culture. It flies in the face of it all. See, our efforts and their efforts of the Corinthians were often expended to gain things we hope for in this life, for ourselves and for our families. Why would someone throw this away, their hopes and their dreams, for something they'd never gain in this life? Does their faith sound like the life of faith the way we often coin it? Let me ask you that. I offer my confession of belief in you, Jesus, and in exchange, I receive personal assurance of eternal security. Then I can continue my same personal and familial pursuits with the added personal assurance of eternal salvation, the life of faith. Did they look like everyone else in their, in, in, in their world, in their pursuits? They looked radically different. Well, I want to analyze this discrepancy a little bit to make sure you don't hear me wrong in what I'm trying to say. Is it because we have 2,500 square foot house while many are homeless? Is that what makes one an affluent society of little faith? Is it because my family drives multiple cars, each of which might be as much as a home of someone else in the world? where multiple generations live? Is it because in our society we literally eat ourselves to death, heart disease being the number one killer while others starve? Is that why? Is it because I want the best schools and the best things for my children so they can prosper while others have no hope at all in this world? Is it because while I'm the of wealthiest people in the history of the world. I spend all my wealth on me and those who I'm closest to while others have nothing. Is it having many possessions and living in luxury that makes a person of little faith? Well, if we go back to our examples, I'm going to have to make these observations. Abraham actually became a very wealthy man, one of the wealthiest. And he had many possessions. And so did his descendants, who are all mentioned, particularly Joseph, who also happened to live in great luxury and pomp in Egypt. David, for sure, when he was king, had great wealth and lived with many luxuries. So I can say this, because he was also a man after God's own heart. Someone's abundance of possessions does not make them a man or woman of little faith. So don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying that at all. Is it that seeking to prosper one's family and their children in this life is what makes you of little faith? Well, I think, again, we're going to have some problems because I can tell you Abraham and everyone mentioned there sought to prosper their children and their family in this life. So I don't know that that's what makes someone of little faith. So what's the difference of the vision of the life of faith we see in the Corinthians and the vision we see in these great men mentioned in Hebrews. You know, I wish it was as easy as getting rid of my possessions (laughs) because I think I could do that if I had to. I don't have a lot right now, but it might have been harder when I had more. But I think I could do that. I just wish it was that easy. But it's something harder. It's this question that we have to answer Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in your resurrection? And remember, when I say do you believe, I mean the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not yet seen. 
I don't mean the ascent of the truth of God that the demons have and they shudder in response to that ascent to that truth. I'm talking about an assurance and conviction that, that issues forth in a radical commitment to the purposes and plan of God. Not an ascent that looks pretty much like, allows you to look pretty much like everyone else's life in the world, except you add a couple of spiritual disciplines to the back end of that and go, that's the difference. In our culture, when we hear this question, and tell me if it's this way for you, do I believe in the resurrection? Often where our minds go is this, to the I who's believing. Do I believe, as if that's the most important thing in that statement, I believe in the resurrection. Do I believe the subject? I think it would be better for us if we focused on the object of our belief, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So rather than, rather than the I who's believing, we turn it to, do I trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that means? And that's where Paul is going here. If you remember throughout Corinthians, the Corinthians, Paul addressed many sin issues. And the root of those sin issues we came to find in chapter 13 was what? You remember? A lack of love, right? They were seeking for themselves in this world. And they were neglecting the needs and the good of others to seek their good solely. And so he comes down to the root issue, which was you have a lack of love. You're self-serving. All that you do and all that you are are so that you might gain more in this life. And that's the problem. And now for the first time ever here in chapter 15, he's making a shift. He said that's the root problem. And here's the ethic of love. And now he comes to, and it's rooted in a false belief. Here's the first time that he's going to talk about a belief. And he turns to resurrection. See, Corinthians lived in a society of haves and have-nots. They might have argued this way. Listen, Paul, I hear you. But if I give my life up for the good of others, do you know what I'll be left with? Nothing. I'll be a have-not. Why would I do that? We might argue the same. What will we have? What security will we have? What will all children have if we give up our own good for the good of others? How will there be any hope in this life if I give up seeking my good for the good of others? Do you feel the tension you should? I know I do. And so what they did was much what we'll do. They compromised a vision of faith. They compromised a vision of living out a resurrection and a death in Christ. They compromised that for something that would allow them to have the best of all worlds. I'll profess a belief with my mouth and be a part of the church at large and continue to pursue all the things I want and desire in this life. In Jesus' name. Do you hear the compromise? It's the great compromise of any society who's ever existed with great wealth. I can live out my hopes in this life now and still have the hopes of a world to come. I can have my cake. I can eat it too. I can have it all. Because I've professed my faith in the gospel, whatever that means. Well, let's look at our text because Paul goes somewhere, and I'll tell you, this has been an interesting week of study for me. Paul goes somewhere I've never caught ever in my life in reading on the resurrection, and he's connected it to things I've not thought of before that really blew my hair back, and I realized that, I, and that would have been a pretty big blast. You're right to laugh. These things are rigid up here, so yes. But it blew it back. It did. 
So if you would, turn, to me right now, turn with me right now to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be looking at 20 through 34. We're going to look at what it means when we say, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we want to evaluate our lives. Do we really believe that? Because if we do, it has profound implications for the way we carry, it out, carry out our lives. And if you'll notice here at 1520, Paul starts out with an expression which he uses quite a bit in his literature. And I just want to point out, the but now usually precedes a very profound expression of the gospel. So, uh, he, he's told about the gospel a little bit. He's told about all these problems. And he's coming to a point where he's like, this is him going, this is radical stuff. So buckle down and open your ears. This is big, okay? And there's reason to rejoice. I realize I brought you down a path of despair a little bit. But I'll tell you what, there's great value to that. Because in the midst of that is where we come to find the hopes of salvation that are so sweet that let us live that life of joy amidst despair. 1520, he says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. And Todd covered firstfruits last week really well. Uh, and it's this idea. It's not just that his resurrection came first, uh, but that his resurrection corresponds to and flows out of the resurrection we too will experience. It's representative of what will come with the rest of the harvest. Okay, so that's the first fruits. And now Paul's going to his primary argument. And I mean, do buckle down. It's some tough stuff, but it is amazing stuff that's rooted to the resurrection. So, so get ready here because what Paul's going to do is he's going to connect resurrection to the cosmic scope of redemption spanning human history from Adam to Jesus, the second Adam, second coming. He's fixing to attack, attach resurrection to that. So if that's the scope that you've been thinking about in resurrection, great, you're there. If it's not, open your minds a little bit to what resurrection actually means. Because it means a lot more than you simply raising from the dead. This is, by the way, the clue to our discrepancy as well in the two different lives of faith. So pay close attention. Verses 21 to 22. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And so here's the idea. Adam and Christ serve as representatives of a group. Okay? So here's what Adam did. Adam decided, you know what, God? Not your way. My way. Not your vision for life. My vision for life. Not don't take of the fruit, but take of it. You know why? Because it's appealing to the eyes, it's appealing to my flesh, and it's desirable to make one wise. And I want to have it all now, God. That's why. And so not your program. My program. And he took of the fruit and he ate. And he was banished from Eden, the place where God dwells. And he became alienated to everyone in life. And he came to face the fate of death. And what it says is this. Those who follow in the way of Adam are relegated to the common lot of Adam. You are his posterity. You come to take on all that he took on in his rebellion against God. But then there's another representative, it's Christ. Those who are bound to Christ, however, are reconciled to God. They're no longer alienated. And they take up God's plan and say, you know what, God? Not my will be done, your will be done. Because that's what's good. And they share in his resurrection and heavenly blessing. In Adam, people take Adam's side and revolt against God. They revolt against God's vision for their life and they pursue their own vision and for that reason they die. In Christ, they're united to Him in such a way that they die with Him in order that they all might also be raised with Him. Do you see it? These two ways. 
But why would we live our lives this way? Why would we sacrifice our lives now for a hope to come? Why would we sacrifice our wills for God's? Well, let's look. Verse 23. But each in his own order. And here it's talking about an order like ranks in a military. Okay? Which is also like the first fruits. The first is representative of the rest. So... In, in these ranks, Christ is first because he's the highest. And after that, those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom of God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. There's a lot of subjecting there, I get it. Just real quick, I want to cover that. The idea is this. The Trinitarian God who rules over all, the Father has handed and won the kingdom and put, is putting all things in subjection under Christ. In the end, and we see in Revelation, there's a, great, there's a great vision of Christ who comes the King in which all things have been put under, and you know what He does with that? What does He do? He hands it to the Father that once again the Trinitarian God might be all in all. That's what it's talking about. But I want to focus on why in the world in a defense for resurrection... Paul would be talking about all this stuff. What does all this stuff mean? You see, he's not lost his argument here, but he's grounding his argument in resurrection into the cosmic victory of Christ over the power of death itself. Follow me here. So not only is the significance of Christ's resurrection that you too will be resurrected one day, but the significance of Christ's resurrection is the destruction of every ruler, every authority, every other power in heaven and earth will be subdued and brought under the authority of the sovereign God of the universe. That's what resurrection is linked to. You might be thinking, so what? What does that have to do with anything? When did Christ's reign begin? When did he begin to reign? Do you remember? When does he come and say, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me? Do you remember when he says that? After the resurrection. Because you see, death reigned until then. And then for the first time, Death was conquered by this man, Jesus Christ, who now has all authority in heaven and earth, which, by the way, is his basis for why you should do what he's commissioned you to do. Because he has all authority even over death. Are you seeing the connection? By the way, he eventually comes to have authority, and death is finally subdued, not only in Christ, but where? In the entire world, death becomes subdued. And so really, you're talking about two different rulers. You're not just talking about Christ's resurrection. You're talking about Christ's resurrection and therefore his rule over all heaven and earth. Or you're talking about death and death's reign over heaven and earth. And your response is indicative of which one you really believe. Do you understand how it's connected to resurrection? In a profound way. I want to talk about death real quick. And I want you to search your hearts and consider these two kingdoms. One under Christ in his reign and one under death and its powers. Psalm 18, 4 through 5 says this. Listen closely. It's very emotional and, and evocative of, of how we might feel the cords of death encompass me, and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death surrounded me. This last enemy, death, it's vividly represented by the psalmist as a strangling of cords of fear and dread. You ever felt that way before? 
like the world's coming down on you and you have dread and fear of what's going to become of it all and it starts to strangle you and choke the life out of you here's another one the cords of death encompass me and the terrors of Sheol come upon me I found distress and sorrow does distress characterize your life sometimes sorrows hopelessness you see this picture of death strangling its victims strangling the life out of them these cords of fear and dread causing anguish and distress that's how you feel when you pay homage to death as one who's ruling consequently do you know what idolatry is got a friend who's a Harvard anthropologist, real smart guy, and he, he works for Wycliffe Translator, so he's also, he's a fairly godly guy too, and he's been working at, and those two don't always go together, but sometimes they do, he's been battling with believers in an African village for some time now, what he calls one of the greatest genocides of all time, and what they're doing, they're believers in this village, and they're drowning witches and I mean a lot of them. And they've been doing it for some time. And the reason they do it is because they believe these witches wield the power of death. And so they're wielding this power of death and it's coming upon their loved ones and killing them. And so they're seeking to kill them, to drown them for the cause of good. And he's trying to show them that this is idolatry. Do you see it, by the way, how this is idolatry? Because I didn't see it at first. I was like, okay, I don't follow, smart guy. How's that idolatry? He goes, well, I'll tell you how. You fear what you ascribe power to. That's how. So if they fear witches, it's because they ascribe power to them, a power that God alone possesses. And that's what's driving them to do what it is they're doing. You see, because you fear what you ascribe power to. So let me tell you how this would work. If you ascribe power to your vision for this life, then in fear of not capturing that vision, you will do all kinds of things. If you ascribe power to financial security, to stability in your family, if you ascribe power to the world and all it offers you, then do you know what you will do in fear? You will pursue it with everything you have. You see, over here, death reigns. And fear drives you to take up your life now. Over here, Christ reigns. And it says, I'll lay down my life because it's sure and certain that I will be raised again one day. There's two powers, and either you will be fearful of the power of death and you'll seek to attain all you can in this life because it's all there is, or you'll believe in the power and authority of God Almighty in Christ and you'll lay down your life knowing that no one else has the power to take it up but Him and that He will in that day. You see the difference? See, idolatry is worshiping another God and the reality is this, when you live your life this way, when you live your life under the reign of death, you do worship another God. You're not worshiping the God who raises the dead. You're worshiping the God who says, death is it for you, so get all you can. There is some good news amidst this. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says this. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus Christ the Lord, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Let me tell you this, guys. and I, This is the great release. You don't have to be subjected to the slavery of your vision for this life anymore. Let that sink in a minute. All your vision for this life that you toil and labor for and become exhausted for, and it's exhausting, isn't it? 
all that life that, that it seems like all life is hinging upon. If I don't, what will happen? What will happen to my kids? What will happen to my life if I don't labor and toil and continue and endure? What will happen if I don't get this vision for my life? I'll tell you this. You no longer have to live in that slavery. Isn't that a relief? Think about that. To no longer have to be driven by the slavery of my vision for this life. You don't have to anymore. You can let that all off because death does not reign. Christ does, and your hope is not in this life. It's in a life to come. And that changes everything. If the dead are not raised, Paul argues, then death remains unconquered. If death remains unconquered, then you're right to ascribe fear and power to death by seeking all the world offers you in this life. But if death has been conquered, you must fear and ascribe power to God alone. I go back to the beginning and go, can I just give away all my possessions? That sounds easier. But you know what? There's not peace and there's not joy in that. It's self-sacrifice once again to live under some vision that I have for what life should be. And that's not what it's about. It's about relinquishing all and saying, God, you are Lord and ruler and you're good. And what I've entrusted to you, you are worthy of. And so I lay down my life and live the path that you've given Next, Paul's going to make a shift here, and he points out a couple things one would not do if the resurrection were not true, okay? And the first one's this, and it's, it's a weird construction, and I'm going to address it real briefly. Verse 29, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? That's a weird construction, I realize. Um, here's a paraphrase for you. Otherwise... What do those who hope to achieve, what do those hope to achieve who are baptized for their dying bodies? Are you, are you with me here? It's not that people are being baptized on behalf of someone else. It's that they, the them, are those being baptized, consider themselves, they were dead. And they were baptized to die in Christ, that they might what? Be raised in Christ. And they actually thought this was a, this was a, a uh, a confession or construction of baptism at that time. And we actually say that when we baptize, don't we? Dead in Christ, raised to new life. It's both a picture of the life we live now and the one that is to come, both. So all your vision for life, all of your grand vision for your life, all the things you once held dear, guess what? Along with Paul, you're counting them all lost now. I've died. Do you remember that construction on the gravestones, by the way? I was not. I was. I am not. I am free from wishes. Guess what? You're free from wishes because you're dead in Christ and your hope is in a life to come. And that should be liberating to you. I know that my dreams for my life are awfully oppressive and they've caused me a lot of pain and a lot of pain for my family. And what I'm coming to see is this. I'm dead. I don't have to serve those anymore slavishly like I once did because death doesn't reign. Christ does because he's conquered all in resurrection and so shall you. One's baptism isn't about, I believe. It's not just an outward profession of their inward reality. Here's what it is. It's an outward profession of a cosmic reality that they're now identifying with. That all rule, authority, and power, and the power of death has been overthrown. And so I can die with Christ knowing that I'll be raised again. And I submit with all of his body here in this kingdom. We submit to his rule and say Christ alone. And we hold one another accountable. And we live a life of death having the certain assurance of resurrection from here on out. We don't have to seek for our own good. We're free to seek the good of others. That's the vision of baptism. 
It's much bigger than the one being baptized. It has to do with all of God's people and his cosmic victory over all things because he is Lord of all. Paul next appeals to his own life and questions. Well, he actually says here in uh, 3030, why are we also in danger everywhere? Who, who are the we? We who have been baptized. Why are our lives living this way? Why are we in danger continually? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I, Paul, die daily. What's the vision of his life of faith? Suffering. Death with Christ. He's making it very clear what that vision is. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If I labored and toiled because of my vision, because of human motives, what's the profit, he said? There's no profit. If the dead are not raised, you ready? Here's the right application if the dead aren't raised. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You hear that application? And that's why I asked you, do you believe in the resurrection? You can work backwards from that and go, what does my life look like I believe? Do you pursue all the wealth, health, and prosperity for yourself and your family? Do you seek to have it all? Do you seek to live, live the one life you can live the best you can and to get all you can out of this life? Is that what drives you? Is that what pursues you? And then ask yourself the real hard question, do I believe in the resurrection? That shouldn't be an easy question for any of us to ask and just pass over and go, yeah, sure I do. Now, I will tell you this. You want to talk to some people that believe in the resurrection? Go find the eldest, grayest-haired people in our congregation. You know why? Because they don't have another hope in the world, and they know it. They know. They've relinquished all the other hopes that they had at this point, and they know this. Death is soon coming, and the only hope I have in this world is that the Lord Jesus Christ will raise me up on that day, and I'll live with him and his people forever. They know unequivocally. Me and Mark laughed about older people. They're really interested in the end times. They're really interested in resurrection. They're interested in Christ coming back. It consumes them, doesn't it, Mark? Do you know why? Because they know now. Any hopes they held before? that weren't rooted in the resurrection and the rule of God were worthless. They know it now. I went to a funeral once and heard the son speaking of their father, a great man, truly great man. And he was at the end and he was like, son, I don't know that I did all I could. And the son, being the great son he was and having had a great father, assured him, no, dad, you were great. You were great, but you know what? I believe the son genuinely believed it, but I think the dad had drawn close to a vision of Christ and what he realized with this. He was worthy of so much more. He was far greater and had far more power than I ever imagined. And in that moment, he knew it. I have one hope in the world, and that's Christ raised from the dead. And that he rules all. The only hope that man had in his life left. And so comes Paul's practical application to the resurrection. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You believers, don't be united to other believers who pursue the things of this world. Confront it. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Don't let it exist among you the way the Corinthians did because it was convenient and we can all have our cake and eat it too. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The idea is this. They are drunk on the lies of this world. They're believing them. They're believing the promise that the world is putting out there for, for them, and they're pursuing that promise as if it's true. Paul's saying, wake up. Wake up. Get out of your drunken stupor. Quit ignorantly pursuing the things of this world like it's going to give you anything. 
I know you've professed faith in Christ and I'm sure you have it, but stop living under the rule of death in this world. Wake up! And once again, this is rooted in their ignorance of God. He says in that very last verse, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. The idea is this. They don't understand the cosmic vision of God from Adam to to Jesus in his resurrection. They don't understand what that means in their life. They obviously don't understand because they're not laying their lives down for the good of others. They're seeking their lives for themselves. And he's saying, you don't know God. You don't know his program. You don't get his vision for life if you're living that way. And I say this to your shame. In an honor-shame society, one who has honor is one who is in keeping with who and whose they are. The one who is shamed is the one who is acting not in accordance with who and whose they are. They're living as if death is reigning. Paul says, you're ignorant of God. Christ reigns. And he'll reign forever. Lay down your lives and live a life of resurrection. I leave you with an encouragement. God will be all things in all. That you can be sure of which means his reign will be unchallenged in all creation, all heaven and all earth. Bank your lives on that truth. God will put all enemies underfoot, and he alone reigns forever. This truth of God's sovereignty over all things should radically reinforce your life. It should not be my faith practices along with my pursuit of the world. In light of God's sovereign reign and the resurrection, all of this gets done away with and dies on the cross with Christ. And our lives are radically redefined by the sovereignty of God and the reality of resurrection. But not in despair. It's not a despairing thing to cast off all your hopes that are false in this world. That's a hopeful thing because you know in your heart of hearts that vision you had for your life, you're never going to attain it. And once you do, you've seen people that do, it never satisfies, not ever, ever. It's a great freedom to throw those things off. Because of the resurrection, you no longer have to go around seeking after this life as, it's the, as if it's the only one you have to live. You're now free to lay down all freedoms. You're free to lay down all your rights. You're free to lay down your vision for this life. You're free to lay down your dreams and aspirations. You're free to lay down your fears and your doubts. You're free to lay down all your selfish desires. You're free to work, not that you can have more, but so that you might have something to give. You're free to not seek your own good only, but to seek the good of others. You're free to count all things lost in this life and rejoice in it. You're free to embrace the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ that you might know Him and count that as gain. You're free to obey God by loving Him, by loving others, and by loving your neighbor as yourself. By loving one another in His church, in His body. Go live the life of resurrection Live a life that testifies that God is and that He's a rewarder of those who earnestly seek Him. Go live a life lived in full assurance of the things hoped for, in a certain conviction of things not seen. Go die with Christ that you might also live with Him in resurrection. Christ is the victor. Go live in His victory. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for this most profound teaching in your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in our faith, to see you for who you are, to bring all things under subjection to Christ in our lives and in this family, this family of God. Lord, let us to live out the vision you've given us for life, not in fear of, of death, but in great hope with a certain conviction of your resurrection our resurrection to come and your rule over all things in heaven and earth. 
And we pray these things for your name's sake, for your glory, and for your praise in all the earth. Amen.